Welcome everybody who's tuning in. I'm sure everybody is just the numbers are going up here as everybody clicks the button to be admitted into the Zoom. So thank you everybody for taking time out of your day to join us. This is the 22nd installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. And as you can see, we're going to be chatting about navigating burnout in genetic counseling. This is a topic that comes up a lot in terms of what people want to be hearing commentary, advice, processing from. So I'm really happy that we're able to cover this in today's webinar. And just want to thank everybody who's joining, stalling a little bit, just so everybody can, you know, have your screens open if they're taking notes, getting your coffee, wine, depending what uh, time zone you're in and everything. Um, very exciting that we have uh, multiple genetic counselors with us who are all coming from different countries. So different time zones and all that, which is really awesome. And so, as I mentioned, we have panelists here. I'm going to be interviewing the panelists for the first chunk of our webinar, but I really want to be able to answer your questions and pose that to our lovely panelists here. So throughout the webinar, I really want you guys to take advantage of the Q&A box so you can submit your questions. And that way, towards the end of the webinar, we can hopefully answer all your questions time dependent. So I don't want you to wait to the end because I don't want you to forget your question. Also want to make sure that we're squeezing all of those in. So definitely use the Zoom Q&A box to submit your questions throughout. Really want to be able to get to those as we go. So as I mentioned, Phenotips is the sponsor for this webinar series. And for those that don't know, Phenotips is more than just a pedigree software. It is a complete solution for medical genetics. It has software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow, has tools like automated pedigrees, built-in risk assessment, advanced pedigree builders, human phenotype ontology capture, and diagnostic insights. And as we've all experienced the pains of electronic health record systems not being built for genetics, that's really what inspired Phenotips to offer this and filling in the gap that provides that unified and seamless genetics workflow, because that's what we all aspire to have, I think. It's always what I'm, I'm trying to get to is how can I make my workflow just that much better and that much easier? And Phenotips started in light of the pandemic. So we started um, in the summer of 2020, and it's just been fantastic to now two years in to still be offering this so that we can collaborate with genetic professionals around the world. I think especially on this episode where we have uh, three panelists from, from three different countries. So as I mentioned, I'm Kira Deneen. I'm your host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast. We are humbled to have won the podcast People's Choice Award for the best science and medicine podcast for the last three years. And this year has been really big for us. It's our 10 year anniversary and we hit 200 episodes. So thanks for all that have tuned in there. And if you haven't, it's very similar to what we're talking about today, just genetic conversations. Um, and my other hat is as a prenatal genetic counselor. Um, and I think I'm the only prenatal genetic counselor on the call today. So maybe I'll bring some insight, we'll see. But enough of me talking, I really want to have our panelists introduce themselves. So people listening in an audio only format, um, our podcast, which that's also a thing if you wanna re-listen to these webinars um, so that you can hear their voices, who's who. Um, Vishaka, I'd love for you to start as our returning panelist. You were on the fourth Phenotips installment um, when we talked about leadership, uh, which was a fantastic installment. Um, so it'd be lovely for you to introduce yourself, followed by um, uh, Brittany and Aaron. Thank you so much, uh, Kira. Lovely to be back, and, and huge thanks to Phenotips for having me back, actually. Um, so I'm Vishaka Tripathi. I'm a consultant genetic counselor based in London, UK. Um, and I predominantly work in cancer genetics and I lead a large um, diversity in genetic I'm Erin. I'm a um, pediatric genetic counselor working at Nemours Children's Health in Delaware in the United States. Um, I uh, primarily work face-to-face -face with patients and families and have been um, working for four years. Unmute. I'm Brittany Johnstone. I'm a clinical cancer genetic counselor at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, Canada. Well, thank you again for all three of you for coming on and 
you know, sharing your insight. As I said at the top, we're going to be talking about navigating burnout in genetic counseling. So my first question may seem obvious, but I think we got to start at square one. What is burnout? How can we define this? What do you guys think of when you hear the term burnout? Um, Brittany, did you want to start us off? Sure. Yes. Um, there are some very clear definitions of burnout out there, so I'll try to do them justice. Uh, burnout is really a crisis in your relationship with work. Uh, it causes you to feel negative about work, exhausted, and um, also decreases feelings of effectiveness at work. So losing hope with your ability to con continue to contribute at work as well. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of just what we're talking about today and, and what we're going to be trying to tackle and looking at, you know, we're going to be identifying some factors that play a role in this and offering some advice in terms of what we can do to try to combat burnout. And so that we can have, you know, really long rewarding careers in genetic counseling as someone that's relatively new to the field. I graduated two years ago. This is something that I'm focused on of, you know, I may not feel burnout at this moment and at this point in my career, but I think it's important that we also prevent burnout. So we're going to be talking about that a lot on um, today's webinar. So as I mentioned, I want to also start out our conversation by chatting about the factors that play the largest role in the development of burnout. So looking at what is contributing to burnout so that, you know, then we can talk about how to tackle this from the beginning. Um, so does anyone want to kind of start out just talking about what factors you think about when looking to contributing to burnout? Um, so I can start off. Um, some of the, the factors that I think of um, are those intrinsic factors that kind of make us who we are and who we are as genetic counselors. So, um, you know, how do you handle situations? Are you resilient? What's your coping strategies? Um, are those coping strategies able to help you with things like self-care and, and mindfulness? Um, so I think some of those factors we think about is um, how do you as a person handle burnout? Are you more likely to experience it? Are you less likely? And, and looking at what those factors are that are unique to that individual. I'm happy to add, I'm happy to add to that. I think we all have lots to say here. Um, yes, I, I think there are lots of personal risk factors and, and um, I think we will probably get into those a little more today, knowing yourself, knowing what risk factors that are in the literature that you might also have as an individual are going to be important in recognizing this. Um, I think one of the things about burnout that doesn't get enough attention perhaps is um, the role of the, the system in which we work. So um, burnout's not something that's that um, with individual self-care or individual characteristics we're going to manage. The changes have to come at the organizational and systemic level as well. Um, so I think also in addition to what Aaron said, I'm thinking about things like workload demands and resources, um, managerial support, administrative supports, things like that have been shown not only in genetic counselors, but in many other fields as well. And I think we can borrow from, from studies in similar fields where that we haven't had the chance to conduct on our own profession. Yeah, that's a great point, Brittany, in that what leads to burnout in genetic counselors is going to be similar to so many other healthcare providers. So it doesn't necessarily need to be specific to genetic counseling. We can look at people that are in roles that I would say are adjacent to genetic counseling or have a lot of similarities. Uh, Vashaka, did you have something to add in? Just going to, to add to what Brittany started off in terms of, you know, thinking about um, genetic counselors as part of the larger system and thinking about the things that perhaps we can control and can't control um, over you know, a prolonged period of time, including the pace and scale of change, particularly at the moment in genetics or genomics, whatever you want to call it, um, in resource constrained environments can, can really press some buttons when you're in, in a helping profession. Um, so I was just going to add to, to that systemic sort of factor there. Yeah, I think that's a, fantastic point in that it doesn't necessarily go back to the genetic counselor. It really is looking at more of that workplace culture and the support there. And I'm sure we're going to get even more into that. When it does 
come to the more personal level, especially for genetic counselors that maybe have been in the field for a few years, what should genetic counselors be mindful of in terms of looking out for signs of burnout in themselves? And then I also kind of want to tack on to that in, in their colleagues. So people that work on teams of genetic counselors to, to see that, you know, in their colleagues and be able to have those conversations. So what would you say some of the red flags are when it comes to being able to identify early on, hmm, I think I'm starting to experience some of this burnout. I think burnout is a bit insidious. Um, sometimes I think you don't know you're burnt out until you've hit this crisis point, um, which is challenging, um, but not hopeless. I, I do think um, there are signs feeling a little less effective at work. So perhaps you're putting in the same number of hours, getting less done or feeling more cynical about your work, you know, resentful even. Um, as well as like energy levels, particularly at the end of the day, like how are you feeling at the end of your work day? Are you completely worn out? Um, and if that seems to be changing or you're noticing your own, and I think part of this is also being self-aware, knowing what stress looks like and how it presents. Do you get irritable? Are you in watching for those signs as well? Um, and in colleagues as well, I tend to see some of my colleagues, um, if they're having a hard time working much longer hours or picking up hours on the weekend when that's not something that's not our typical work hours and see I see colleagues struggling with that and putting in more hours and still getting less done. So certainly that efficiency angle to it of if you're putting in the same hours that you used to not getting as much done or having to put a lot more hours in where you used to, to get the same amount done. Yes. I was going to say that I think it's a multi-component construct and what that construct looks like for each genetic counsellor will be different um, but by and large from from my experience there will be usually be one or two you know facets of that construct that have the ability to to dip dip us um, more than other people and it's just about knowing them having insight into them um, and if you look at so I worked in palliative care during COVID here, and um, one of the things they actively talk about all the time um, is compassion fatigue, which you know there's a lot of literature on, and that can often be one of those red flags, as you say, Kira, to, even before burnout, that we can look out for and think about um, and talk about a bit more. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point and bringing up another good term like compassion fatigue and being aware of your own emotions when you're wrapping up a session, when you finish talking to a patient and saying, okay, checking in with yourself, like, how am I feeling after that? And it, it sounds simple, but I, looking at my own work, I don't necessarily do this all the time and I could definitely do it more so. And I, I rely on colleagues that I don't necessarily work. I'm the only genetic counselor on my team, but reaching out to colleagues so that we can process that. And I think that's something for myself that helps me in not feeling like I've got all of this on my plate by myself. Now, the past two years, things have changed a lot in healthcare. We've seen the uptick of telehealth options and many genetic counselors working from home. I think this has been one of the biggest changes with COVID as a affects us personally. Um, have any of you had that experience either now or previously switching to a telehealth model, either full-time, part-time? I'm wondering if you can, you feel comfortable just sharing what that experience was for you and how it did affect burnout of, of not having that separation maybe between physically going into an office, coming home, being like, okay, I'm done with my day. I'm turning that off. And, you know, maybe working from different parts of your house or having to, you know, separate yourself from other people that are working in your home. Um, did anyone have this experience during COVID? Yeah. So, um, before COVID, um, we were primarily in person um, and we've transitioned now to a hybrid model. So I am working almost 50% in person and 50% at home and it just changes depending on the week. Um, but leading up um, when the uh, pandemic started in 2020, um, we were 100% um, um, working from home. So we saw patients um, virtually. Um, all of our meetings, all of our interactions were virtual, as I'm sure it was for most other people as well. Um, and so, um, as many 
of you can also um, remember is there was the, that lack of um, interaction. There was the, the social distancing, even though it should have been more like physical distancing um, and trying to keep those social contacts. Um, so um, my, my desk, my, where I was working from home was my bedroom. Um, so um, there wasn't a lot of distance between work and from my life at that time. So my work became my life. And um, that in addition to um, not seeing my coworkers, um, not having um, that much to really talk about other than the, the pandemic, um, definitely led um, looking back led to me feeling some burnout. I didn't realize it in that period of time, but once we came back in person, um, there was all that feeling of detachment and, um, and, and cynicism towards, you know, my work. And then there were some other institutional changes that also led to that. Um, and that has greatly improved with the hybrid model um, but that was definitely a period of time that it was, it was really difficult. Yeah, I can relate to that. I didn't work telehealth for, you know, my genetic counseling job, but, you know, over the years have, you know, before genetic counseling, I didn't have an in-person job. So I've always worked remotely. Um, and it's, it's hard to like have that separation of my work became when I had energy. So it was like, oh, I have a spurt of energy at 10 PM. Like let's get two hours of work done and then go to bed. And it, it just creates kind of like a, oh, whenever I can, I should get work done instead of having that schedule and knowing my body's like, okay, it's, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., it's time to wind down, have some dinner, relax. Um, so it's it's really affected people in ways that maybe we didn't expect. We hear, oh, we can work from home. Oh, great. I can be in my PJs and all this great stuff. I can put a load of laundry in between patients, get the dishwasher going, you know, check in with the kids, whatever it is. But there's also some drawbacks with that that I think we've all, you know, experienced to some degree with COVID. And Ashok, I really want to tap into your many years of experience and seeing, you know, the genetic counseling field change over time, but obviously focusing on burnout. How have you seen this change over the years that you've been in the field? You, you also lead a team of genetic counselors. So not just for yourself, but just, you know, being a leader of other people and other genetic counselors. What is your perspective on, on how that has adapted over the years in terms of, you know, more technology advances and, and other aspects that have changed in our, our careers? Yeah, and you, I think, hit the nail on the head with using the word change. Um, and that's, that's, you know, I think affected us in so many ways. So I can, I was thinking about this question, Kira, and um, in my mind, thinking about myself being in training. Um, and I'm not sure that it was as acceptable at that time um, to disclose that I was, you know, emotionally fatigued or wanted a break or didn't want to see a particular type of patient, for example, you know, at that early stage in one's career that can sometimes be construed as lacking resilience or, you know, not being good enough, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and this audience knows all those things. Um, and there's elements of, I suppose, unconscious bias and judgment as well. Um, if one, you know, discloses perhaps a vulnerability um, in the workplace, but, that was then. I I feel that things have shifted and they've shifted in a positive direction where actually, you know, thinking about disclosing some of that, sharing it with your manager, for example, or sharing it with a colleague that you feel you can confide in and just talking it through um, helps. It's no longer as, I suppose, taboo um, as it was. Uh, and actually, it's it certainly here in the UK, um, it's starting to be a large part of our annual appraisal process um, and uh, for genetic counsellors it's actually you know accessing regular high quality um, counselling supervision is a mandatory requirement so that all those things have really helped to change that perception to you know build um, in the fact that these things are important and, and these things you know we ought to talk about them so when you said that supervision is part of the requirement, is that for your institution or in the UK? I'm curious. Well, so that is a mandatory requirement for all um, GCRB registered genetic counselors. 
think we should learn a thing or two in the U.S. I would, I would love to have that part of the process. Maybe as a, the next, you know, maybe the next phenotype series can be on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, I'm taking notes over here. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting, and that I think you bring up a a good point in that having it not be taboo. Like as you were talking, I was thinking of that word, and and just as a society, zooming out from genetic counseling, just as a society, I think it's been so normalized in the best way that you know either seeing a therapist, whatever people, you know, you'll be with a group of friends, at least you know millennials, I think, and like oh, the other day my therapist and I were talking about blah blah blah, and it's like it's nobody's phased by that. It's just really normalized, and I I love that, and it's great that that is really seeping into our careers and that we can talk with our manager about this because from the manager perspective and from the institution perspective, this is really good for employee retention and also for employees to just do a really good job and, and give it their best and for employees to feel like they're being supported. I think there's been a shift over the years of, you know, salary is always, you know, a big component of a job and, and what is the salary and, and all, all of the financial aspects that go into that. But now it, it, it seems to be other pieces of the puzzle are becoming more important. And I would say this is one of the areas people go on job interviews. They're asking, you know, well, how, how does the support look like? And how does PTO work? Like, are there sick days? Are there mental health days within that? Do I have to differentiate between them? So I think we're, we're seeing a lot of changes there. And another aspect that I wanted to touch on with you, Vishaka, is, is looking at burnout between different underrepresented minorities within our profession. So you've been really active online about advocating for people that are underrepresented groups in our profession. Have you noticed burnout being any different between groups? Like I'm, you know, I'm just wondering that after, you know, being an active follower on your social media. Really good question. And it's really making me think, um, if I'm honest, I'm not 100% sure whether there is a real difference, um, primarily because of two reasons. One, um, certainly in senior leadership and genetic counseling positions in the UK, uh, there are still not as many genetic counselors from an ethnic minority background. Um, although I'm very, very fortunate that the team I work in, you know, is very rich and diverse. So I can certainly draw from that. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, views and experiences of, of burnout or even compassion fatigue or issues even are much different between um, those individuals. What I would say, however, is that sometimes cultural differences and societal acceptance for genetic counsellors from underrepresented backgrounds or different backgrounds can certainly add an element of perhaps pressure um, when there are other existing stresses on that individual. And I can see how the trajectory of something like burnout might be faster in those individuals. Because they have other exacerbating mm -hmm. factors there that are just adding to it. Like if we use the, the jar analogy that I'm sure a lot of us have used in terms of, you know, um, like mental health of, all right, if you're starting out with this many marbles and you only, you have so many more marbles in, you're already at the top, you're already overflowing. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a really good, um, observation there. And, and I think one aspect that I think about with burnout is mantras or sayings that help, you know, you three, or if you've provided this to other, you know, um, people that you mentor or colleagues of mantras that help you process anxiety or stress, or just kind of help you be in a good mindset. I know one for me is, is a Maya Angelou quote that I've, I've really always kind of turned to when I'm, I'm struggling. And, um, the quote is if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. And that's something that I kind of check in with myself. Like, can I do anything about this? Yes. All right. Let me put that on to-do list, get it done. If I can't do anything about it, how can I reframe my mindset? So it's not bothering me, um, as much. Is there anything that you guys think of in, in terms of like a mantra saying or mindset? Um, so one thing I think about um, sometimes, and this is more for those like acute experiences where I, I know I'm feeling stressed or anx anxious about something coming up, you know, whether it be, um, you know, a talk you're going to give that you're a little nervous for and um, or if it's a result that, you know, is going to be really difficult to handle both from the counseling 
and the patient perspective. And I, I always tell myself this too shall pass. Um, and, you know, it's one that um, I just kind of go back to, there is another side to this. Um, I know it can't always be applied to every situation, but um, it is always helpful to look for that other side of, of um, you know, what you're feeling stressed about. I can't say that I have a mantra, but uh, mindset, I think I can um, comment on. I think um, especially like we're saying as burnout and other topics in, in the realm become less taboo, I, I certainly try to share where I am with my colleagues and, and family, but I think this is more a workplace discussion, especially when, when speaking of burnout. So share with my colleagues where I am. I try, um, I think there's not a genetic counselor I've met that hasn't worked extremely hard. And so knowing that when you when you've put in your full day, week, month, whatever it is of work, knowing that whatever got done was it. And like you did, you did your best, like acknowledging that and then giving yourself permission to take a break. Um, so leisure, like very clear, unplugged leisure time separated from work is, is shown. And we haven't studied this in genetic counselors, but I suspect it would be true to reduce burnout. You can, you need to disconnect and turn off trying not to log in at 10 when you have that burst of energy and, <laughs> um, yeah. And giving yourself permission to take time off. I appreciate the work that you've done. And that's a great segue, Brittany, to one of the other questions I have, and probably one of the, my main questions. So for people that maybe you're half listening to the webinar or something like start listening now, this is important. So how can genetic counselors and other healthcare providers mitigate the effects of burnout? So Brittany brings up one great aspect of looking at taking a break and realizing like when you're super, super stressed and you're like, I have time for nothing. That's the time where you do need to take a break and, and work that in. I've, I've learned that over time when my to-do list gets to a certain point, I'm like, all right, hold on, let's break this out. I have to put on my to-do list, take a break, which sounds silly, but that's what works for me. Um, any other thoughts on how we can start mitigating the effects of burnout? So I'm going to get on my soapbox here and just say the first thing we need to do is advocate for systemic and organizational change, <laughs> because we're not going to solve this on our own. But that's not to say that there's not hope and not things that you can do, but you've like we've got to. And there are organizations, even in Ontario, physicians groups that have laid out very strategic and specific steps organizations can take can take to shift this things like even trying to change the culture from the top down accepting work-life balance, being more permissive of part-time work, things like that. Anyway, there's lots to say there. Um, when it comes to individuals uh, in genetic counselors, we have looked into this a little bit. So I've, I'm very uh, familiar with the literature in genetic counselors. I read it. I do a lit review regularly on this because it's important to me. Um, so mindfulness-based stress reduction is, is something um, I think perhaps we'll talk about a little bit more in this in this uh, webinar, but if you can shift, not your state, so there's a difference between state and trait mindfulness. So state would be, I'm going to sit down and do a mutation, a mutation, <laughs> a meditation, and that's going to change my, my mindfulness in this moment. But trait mindfulness is baseline person, personality level, much harder to shift, but if, but it's possible with courses and intensive mindfulness training, genetic counselors with higher levels of trait mindfulness have lower levels of burnout. So that's a that's a huge recommendation. You would have to take a there's a lot of work that has to be done in that way, but there are other things outside our field that are obvious. Nurturing professional and personal relationships, taking time to disconnect from work. Most kinds of support are helpful. Social support, professional support, support from a a manager, these things they they do help as well as time management, learning to say no, that's hard, learning to set boundaries and respect them yourself. Um, everything you say yes to is a no to something else. So just make sure it's an enthusiastic yes if you're able to say or able to decide. <laughs> can I can I add to that with my my flag? Of course, of please do. Advocate, advocating for supervision again, <laughs> um, because I I just can't quite put into words how invaluable 
it, it really is, um, at least, you know, for genetic cancer in England that do have access to it. Um, and I know that, you know, having to go to something, doesn't matter what it is, as adults can sometimes feel a little bit onerous, sometimes a little bit tedious, but equally it's a, it's a space where um, exactly what Brittany was saying, you know, you learn to say some of those difficult things, like you learn to say no, you learn to, to think about why you're doing something and how you're doing it, you know, is it the most efficient way? Um, why is it that you're ringing one patient 10 times versus you're not ringing 20 others? Is that actually equitable care? And is that fair? Is that fair on you as a practitioner? So just, just really practical things perhaps that we take for granted um, and carry with us um, because we, we think we have to, because um, we're trained that way. We're trained to be helpers and we're trained to be givers. So it's nice to have that space where someone can give you permission to let go of some of that. Um, and that's really been helpful for me over the years. I feel like I need you as a supervisor. <laughs> you sound amazing. Um, and I just wanted to give a quick plug um, for people that are listening live. Please submit your questions. I see Francisca and Corinne, hi Corinne, um, have submitted questions. So I wanna make sure we answer your questions at the end. So I do see them coming in. Make sure you guys are submitting yours. I mean, I can talk all day, but we should probably hear your questions. So I think the other part, Brittany, that I wanted to really pull out of what you were saying too, is, is that, you know, you said this multiple times now that we can only do so much for ourselves in terms of burnout. I think the, the next step is really looking at that, the workplace and the institution, the organization that you're in to help you. If someone does have, you know, whether it's HR, their manager, their genetic counseling supervisor, whoever's the person that they report to or help manages them, what advice do you have in terms of going to them to say, this is what I need because I'm starting to feel this burnout and I really want to address this now so I can be the best employee and best genetic counselor I can for my patients. Do you have advice on preparing yourself going into that meeting, maybe different phrases to use or you know what someone should ask for? Because you've mentioned some, but I feel like this, it'd be great for people listening that are like, I, I want to approach my work, but I don't really know what to say. It's a tough one. Um, I So it is challenging. I suppose it depends on which part of burnout you're struggling with. So I think the first thing I would try to do there is um, think about what you are contributing. And in, I would say a lot of genetic counselors in this scenario are probably struggling with burnout, not because they can't do their job properly or not because they can't handle the workload. It's because there's there's more work than can be done with the time allowed or the resources available. And so um, not feeling guilty or and, and not apologizing, I think, is probably part of it because this is probably an organizational issue if you're struggling and particularly if you're noticing other colleagues struggling as well. So going in with that to stand on um, and then thinking about what exactly you're struggling with or where your manager can give, because I think even the manager is really not the organization. And yeah, we, we need to hire three more genetic counselors to deal with our backlog. Well, that managers can't do much with that. I think that would be very challenging. I mean, it, it, perhaps a helpful suggestion they can pass on. I'm thinking more about things where in other fields, it's been shown that flexible hours for example, can, can really help reduce burnout. Is that somewhere they can give wiggle room or, like you're saying, Aaron, with a hybrid model, does that work better for some people? Are we able to allow people to cut their commute and work from home and save the time or, you know, get to home to their children sooner? And that would make enough of a difference in another realm of their life to help target this. So yeah, I think you do have to get creative. Um, I have a ton of lists on risk factors and things we can target. Um, I'm happy to, I don't know that my contact details got shared. I'm happy to hear from people later. I don't think we can cover all those lists, but there's things to think about, lists to review, and things that your workplace could probably shift on, even to help in the in the interim while organizations are trying to change. Fantastic. Are those public resources where we could provide a link to people listening? I we, could we can catch up after. I'm very happy to provide it's... a list of references. I mean, there, there are lists on slides for talks that I've given and things like that, but they've all come from the literature. So I'm very happy to provide a lengthy list of references 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be great. And then we'll end up um, putting that in the blog post that goes with this episode available at phenotips.com um, under resources tab. Um, so we'll, we'll catch up on that. So I think the kind of another Another topic that I wanted to explore in this is looping you and Aaron, you're the first author on a paper that discusses moral distress in genetic counseling. For those that aren't familiar with the term, can you explain what moral distress is and what are the most common sources for this for genetic counselors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moral distress um, has been um, well established, at least um, in the nursing field and in healthcare. Um, so that's where most of the research um, has been so far. Um, and when I think about moral distress, I think about when you encounter a morally compromising situation and you experience this inability to act or act in a way that aligns with your um, core values and your, pers um, your personal ethics. Um, so you you know, you might have a decision to make, but you're left with two wrong choices that just don't feel like they fit with your moral compass, or you're put in a direction um, where you only have, I mean, I guess it's not even a choice if it's just one choice, but you have, um, you have um, to decide um, and it's, and it's um, doesn't align with, with those values. Um, and so it's not necessarily um, psychological or emotional distress. Um, it's, uh, I think a classic example comes from nursing where a nurse is taking care of an ICU patient and the patient's body, body is actively trying to pass away, but the patient doesn't have a DNR. So they have to um, continue to res resuscitate this patient, even though they know that that person is trying to to die. Um, so it's been um, associated with burnout and nursing and other professions um, and like social work, psychology, therapists, um, or sorry, physical therapists. So um, what the purpose of our study was to see um, is what does this look like in genetic counseling and is it associated with burnout? And um, the sources that we found that respondents provided, um, there were four sources, um, and it was hard to compile this information into just um, these categories because a lot of the scenarios that the respondents gave could have been put into multiple different ones. Um, and some of the um, situations that the respondents gave have really stuck with me. So I can only imagine. Um, you know, what, what the effects of that have been on them. So the, the first uh, source, the one that most respondents gave were other providers. So that would be coworkers, um, mostly non-genetics providers um, or um, other um, doctors and providers, um, even in the genetics community. An example of that would be, um, and this has also been researched um, and, and provided in the literature as adverse effects, um, especially in cancer genetic counseling. So um, if you have a patient in front of you who um, has a family history of breast and ovarian cancer, they reportedly had BRCA testing already, they're presenting with a primary cancer themselves. And you look back in the records, um, because the patient says they don't have BRCA, they're not positive for it. And you look back at the records um, and the oncologist ordered the testing, gave the results that it was negative, but you look at the report and it's positive. Um, so you're left with a patient who is positive BRCA. Um, they have a primary cancer. This report is a few years old. Um, could this primary cancer have been prevented if they were offered the screenings? Um, the NCN guidelines. So um, that was um, the an example that was fairly common um, from cancer, but also across other specialties as well, are misinterpreting results and um, just providing wrong recommendations based off of that result. Um, the second most common were situations involving other family members. So they weren't necessarily family members to the provider or to the patient, 
but things like duty to warn, patient privacy, autonomy. Um, one example that really left with me um, has or uh, affected me was one where um, a respondent said, um, and this also involves cancer genetic counseling, um, they have a mom and three, uh, three of her daughters. Um, the mom has Lynch syndrome. Um, the daughters want to be tested. Um, the mom has two other daughters and the mom and the daughters in front of you said they don't like those other daughters. They don't want them to know about the mom's Lynch syndrome history. Um, and so this counselor was left with, well, um, here I'm feeling with this duty to warn those other um, sisters and left with this inability to do that because of the patient privacy. Um, the third most common um, is um, the professional responsibility. So feeling burdened between um, how much work am I supposed to do? You know, if I'm the only prenatal GC at my job and I have results to give, I need to go on vacation. Do I give results while I'm on vacation? And the fourth um, source was access. So things like, um, oh, sorry, personal beliefs. So um, things like um, beliefs towards things like termination, not necessarily pro-choice versus pro-life, but thoughts about someone's decision to terminate if it's a child or a fetus with, um, you know, cleft lip and palate, um, you know, deciding to terminate based off of something like that, um, as well as access. So access to finances um, and opportunities for things like um, insurance coverage as well. And it's a fantastic paper. I mean, you're just <laughs> highlighting some of what you were finding throughout your research with this. And I think it's helpful for people to, you know, we have these feelings of burnout and everything, but to be able to, you know, tune into today's webinar and just hear more process with it. And also to read these papers along with Brittany's paper too, that we'll, we'll link to in the show notes, the, the blog post for this episode because it gives you terms to apply to what you're feeling. And I think there's something to be said for that experience and being able to explain what you're feeling and realize that so many people in our field have experienced this to some degree. Um, I think, you know, especially you hit X year in the field, I'm sure you've experienced burnout, you know, at least once. So I think that's just a really, really great recap of it. But, you know, people should still read the paper. It's more of a teaser. I, think, <laughs> there. I want to span out a little bit because we've been talking about the individual experience with burnout and how that relates to the organization and all of that. But I want us to talk about the effect of burnout on our profession as a whole. So I can't remember, I think we've hit 5,000 genetic counselors in the United States. So I can't imagine now how many we are worldwide. What do we see as the effect in general of in our profession? I mean, you know, one of the things I think of is we have a lot of genetic counselors that are leaving clinic roles and looking to have roles in industry because they may experience less burnout in industry roles. You know, I'm not citing any papers just from what I've experienced from some colleagues, you know, and seeing this trend in general. Are there other effects that you know, the three of you see in terms of affecting that profession level or the healthcare level even? I can go first, Kira. So certainly uh, um, our experience here in, in the UK is not dissimilar. We are um, losing genetic counsellors from the NHS to the commercial sector, um, where perhaps there's, you know, different working conditions, maybe different um, con type of contracts. Um, but the other thing, I think, particularly over the last sort of um, three, four years, I've begun to notice is perhaps a reticence to, um, to, to progress within the genetic counseling career ladder, um, take on you know, more senior roles, positions, perhaps because there is um, an insight already that the system you're working in is a challenging one. And um, the more senior you get, the, the more you, know, you have to be in that environment, you have to function in that environment and probably to have conversations that are not as pleasant. <laughs> um, so we're, we're definitely seeing, you know, very, very capable colleagues thinking twice um, before reaching, reaching out for opportunities, um, 
which sometimes makes me sad. Yeah. And salary, unfortunately, I think plays a big role when we look at even the professional status survey from the National Society of Genetic Counselors in the United States, the, the difference in average salaries between people working in direct patient care clinic versus in these non-direct patient care, like industry, laboratory, you know, all the other types of roles, there's a big difference between that. And I think at some point that becomes very important in someone's life, you know, different points, you know, you're getting out of grad school, you're looking, how can I pay back these loans? You have kids, you get married, whatever it is that you're like, you know, this is a really important aspect that I think that's one of the reasons, but yet you're highlighting a lot of others that coming with clinics, sometimes there is more stress and work that goes into it, maybe compared to other, our counterparts in industry. And that you were definitely seeing a big shift in that. I think the last few years too, because there's not as much of a, you know, bring up the word taboo again, of people graduating, going straight to industry. I think there used to be a big taboo. Like you've got to put your, your time in and in clinic and then go to industry. And, and there's plenty of people I graduated with that went straight to industry. Um, so I think that's, you know, something that we're just seeing, you know, overall kind of the ripple effect from that. Are there any other factors we think about in terms of affecting the healthcare field before I get to some of our uh, viewer questions? I think we know, um, like Vishaka is hinting at here, like this is so employee turnover and ab absenteeism is another thing I suppose we see. So we we start seeing people taking not only days off when they need it for mental or physical health reasons, which are both associated with burnout. We're seeing people taking leaves of absences in, in increasing amounts um, and then leaving roles, changing roles more frequently or leaving the profession altogether. So I think you're talking about the professional status survey. I think it was 2020 they asked people the reason that they had left the profession. So not just the role and changed roles, but left the profession of genetic counseling. And burnout was the number one reason cited by, I think like 40% of respondents or something like that. It was strike, that was striking to me. And that's that's also a stat from your paper that you were the first author on that, like 40% of respondents had considered leaving or, or left their role. Yeah. yeah. It consistently across papers in genetic counseling since 2010, anyone that's looked at burnout in one way or another, it's it's usually over half are experiencing moderate to high levels of burnout, considering leaving the field and all these other negative effects, because there are negative effects on the individual as well. Even though this is a workplace related issue, we start seeing personal relationships suffering, sleep suffering, substance use increasing, things like that. Um, and so yeah, there are consequences across the board and it's expensive for organizations, which is why I think we're starting to see an investment in this. So employee turnover is incredibly expensive for an organization and it's worth everyone investing in this. It is from a financial standpoint, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what companies look at, unfortunately, usually first, but even more importantly, I think so that your employees are happy. They, they want to stick around. They're contributing. They're seeing what their colleagues need. Oh, can I help you with that? It's just, I think morale for a company and organization is so important and oftentimes I think undervalued and underrated there. So I want to get to some of our uh, questions that you're submitted. And if you're thinking of a question right now and you're like, should I ask, go ahead, ask, put it in the Q and A box. So our first question comes from Corinne, um, and it's for you, Vishaka. So can you share any tips, lessons you've learned or skills you've developed while working in palliative care you've adopted to help prevent burnout? Corinne actually works in palliative care, so I think that's that's what's really uh, sparking her question there. Um, so yeah, she'd love to hear a little bit more from you in terms of working in palliative care and, and how that's maybe transitioned into burnout prevention. What a great question. Um... So one of the things that I, perhaps we all know subconsciously, but I actively had the opportunity to think about with colleagues during that time in palliative care is, um, and, they, and there's some qualitative research on this, is an expectation on, you know, us as healthcare professionals to perhaps uh, portray things in a positive light, um, even if we know uh, inherently that the news we're trying to convey is not positive. Um, you know, to open the session with a smile, for example, sometimes it can be really subtle things. Um, and the need to do that, you know, when you're doing that repeatedly day in, day out, particularly in the palliative care or end of life care setting, in fact, where actually the proportion of, you know, families and patients that they're seeing, it isn't good news. So having to put that front um, is exhausting. Um, and really massively contributed to, you know, 
um, the team feeling uh, low in energy, um, not overwhelmed, but just low. Um, and it was really helpful to have actually, it was in a ward where we talked about it, um, you know, where some of the nurses were saying, you know, going in every morning, talking to families who are just about to lose someone, but greeting them with a smile just felt quite disingenuous. It wasn't congruent with the picture in front of them. And it was really cathartic to be able to just put it out there that perhaps we don't have to do that. And um, perhaps it's okay to, to go in without a smile. And, and for me, I think I've taken that away because um, it, there are some situations in genetic counseling uh, where it, it's, it's appropriate to, to, to do that. It's appropriate to, to be that way, not because we don't care or we're not interested, but because that's genuinely the emotion in the room. Yeah, meeting patients where they're at, I think, can be good. And in and, and reading the room, I think that's a skill that we have as genetic counselors of, and that has become hard with telehealth. But, you know, looking at that body language, where are they? And, you know, usually if we're, you know, getting a patient from a waiting room and it's just a typical normal visit, we're like, hey, how are you? Good to see you. My name's Kira. I'm your genetic counselor, blah, blah, blah right? And that's not always going to be appropriate, as you're saying, and kind of just adapting to the situation, I think, is is important. Um, our other question um, that we have so far, keep submitting Q&A questions. Um, Francesca asks, thank you, all very important topic. Genetic counseling can be a very niche job, particularly in small countries. Is there any specific resources, support available, access for counselors burning um, out in the world who may not have a local facility to go to? We've kind of been talking about relying on coworkers and managers, but not everybody has this situation. Um, is there any that you guys think of off the top of your head? We'll certainly um, provide a lot more in the blog post for this episode, um, but any that you guys think of in the moment that sometimes you send people to? So we we have a uh, in-house um, staff counseling service, um, which we can access, um, you know, we can access as and when um, we need to. So that's often a helpful avenue. Um, we also have occupational health in certain hospital settings. Um, but equally, I think it's important to recognize that burnout is, is not a concept or you know, a symptom that only affects genetic counselors. It affects healthcare professionals across the board. And I would possibly challenge and argue that it's probably the, the professional groups that don't talk about it probably have it more um, so it may take someone to actually start that conversation um, in the first place um, to, to pull in colleagues who are feeling the same way if, if they feel that, you know, they're the only person with that or they're the only genetic counselor, for example, in that organization. Because they're definitely not the only one. If it's, it's like if you feel like you have a question and you think it's like not great, it's like someone else in the room has that question, same concept, that if you're experiencing it, so are other people um, in this role. And we have another question that was submitted through social media. Um, I find that finding the meaning in my work can often help me recalibrate, but I'm having a hard time doing that right now. Do you have any recommendations for approaches on finding the meaning in our work and helping me figure out how to recalibrate? For me, this goes back to, to saying enthusiastic yeses. So you can't always change your patient load or, or the cases that happen to come your way or are booked for your schedule. Although I, I do try and I do derive a lot of meaning from working with patients. It's those extra projects, um, which there are endless, there's an endless number of them, I think, for most genetic counselors, research opportunities, supervision, clinical supervision. Um, I try to pick and choose carefully what I say yes to there, which presentations or talks I take part in. I make sure that's something that's a passion of mine if it's something that's optional. I know I struggle with this. I want to say yes to everything. And it's like, then mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I have too many projects going on. How about you, Erin? Oh, I was going to um, add on to that. It may just say the same thing as what Brittany was saying, is that um, I found that taking on um, those research projects um, have really allowed me to um, have a, a new face and approach to my job, even if it doesn't involve those projects. Um, and those have kind of come by chance. I wasn't necessarily seeking them out. So saying yes to those opportunities where you weren't necessarily looking, but um, 
they kind of just come up unexpectedly. I also wondered whether um, the colleague that asked the question might find it helpful to think about um, the fact that often we focus on ourselves um, when we are lacking energy drive um, and get apathetic, but I wondered whether that's symptomatic of uh, a wider issue. Sometimes there's conflicts within a team, sometimes there's, you know, a lack of clarity about personal goals, lack of clarity about team goals. Um, so just opening up that dialogue with um, your line manager might might be helpful. Yeah, that can be really helpful because then you're, I, I'm a very goal oriented person. So for me, when I have goals, I'm like, okay, I'm working towards something, you know, there's, there's a, a, you know, not light at the end, but something like that, where you're saying all this hard work is going towards something. And I, I find that for me, that's really helpful in, in having my motivation come back up if I was feeling low at a certain point of saying, all right, let's let's kind of reevaluate here. What What is my goal? Can I break this goal into maybe smaller parts? So I feel like I'm achieving those milestones throughout as you're bringing up. And I thought because we have a couple more minutes, we could define a couple terms that we haven't had the chance to yet. So there's this difference between a stressor versus stress. And I was coming across this just as I was preparing for this webinar. Uh, does anyone want to speak to the difference between a stressor and stress? Because as I mentioned, I think putting terms to concepts can help people in figuring out what they're experiencing and then how to mitigate that. So I can firstly say I haven't looked closely into this. However, my interpretation of this is um, a stressor is something that happens an or something in your environment. And the stress is actually your response or your experience of what's happening. And I think in, in many cases, we might not have control as much control over the stressors as the stress and how we try and trying to learn to help ourselves respond in ways that are gentler for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I kind of almost think about it like the stressor is the independent variables and then the dependent variable would be the stress almost of seeing like how you are processing and, and being affected and having a response to those stressors. And, you know, sometimes you don't have control over those stressors and everything. Um, I think the other one that I wanted to define was external versus internal stressors, that there is a difference between those two. Um, are you guys familiar with this? Not as closely. I understand that all of these things overlap and it's an right. important, stress is an important contribution to burnout. I suspect that external, again, is more like stressors and internal is your thoughts, emotions, responses to it, but I don't know enough to comment. I don't. Well, maybe that's some viewer homework so that we can mm. leave everybody with a little something to do and just further their own homework and just, I think, you know, thoughts and actions on doing something about preventing burnout and everything. So, well, I think that about wraps us up. We were able to answer um, everybody's questions, which is fantastic. Really want to thank everybody for tuning in today. It's been great to connect with people throughout the world, as I love being able to do with the Phenotype Speaker Series. When this webinar ends, you're going to see a feedback link in your browser. And we're also going to email you this in the next couple of days, just in case you're headed off to that next meeting or wherever you're going. But please take a minute to offer your feedback. And that will really help us improve our upcoming webinars. And so that we can provide you with information that's really helpful for you because we're doing this for you guys at the end of the day. Um, and I just love learning alongside everybody. So the email will also include a link to the Phenotype Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. As I mentioned earlier, you can go to phenotips.com. Under the resources tab, that's where the speaker series pops up in that drop down menu. And we have all of our installments on there, as well as in podcast apps. So you can search for the Phenotips speaker series if you're more of a podcast listener like myself. And I want you guys to stay tuned. Our next webinar is going to be coming in the new year, February 2023. So can't believe we're already saying you know, 2023, but here we are. So definitely sign up for those alerts. That way you don't miss our upcoming webinars. 
our social media, as you can see, is right in front of us here. Um, we're at Phenotips. I think on Twitter, we're probably the most active, but I'd throw LinkedIn on there too. Um, and if you want to connect with myself and my team, including Corinne, who was one of our viewers today, you can search DNA Today on all social media and podcast players. Um, on social media, we're at DNA Today Podcast, and you can head over to dnatoday.com. But Vashaka, Aaron, Brittany, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing so much insight. I think out of the webinars we do, today's was a little bit more personal and just sharing your own experiences, but your expertise within these fields um, and how it just affects genetic counseling with burnout. I hope that it's you know the beginning of many conversations to come because this is going to be ongoing. There's, there's no quicker, easy answers. I think as we've talked about, it's really opening this dialogue and keeping it going. So thank you all so much for tuning in and for the three of you for being our panelists. So thank you so much.